there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast, which is now a member of the Spilled Potion Independent Arts Collective. You can check out all the awesome things the collective is up to, as well as the other fantastically nerdy podcasts that we've partnered up with over at SpilledPotion.com. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. Welcome, nerdlings, to another episode of Crime Time Nerds. But before we get going on tonight's case, we also have another treat for you. We also have a promo we're going to play real quick from our friends over at First Encounter Podcast. And y'all know how much Ash and I love their show. So go give them a listen, a little nerdling love, and, you know, you'll get a good laugh out of these two's antics. So we'll uh, let y'all have a quick listen, then go check them both out. Have you ever thought, boy, I sure do wish I could experience my favorite game again for the first time? Do you clutch a bouquet of flowers to your bosom while thinking fondly back of nostalgic, heady days of gaming gone by? Well, golly gee wizard, do we have the podcast for you. I'm Chris, and Final Fantasy VII is my favorite game of all time. And I'm Hanny, Chris's best friend for over two decades, and I've never played Final Fantasy VII in my life. Join Hanny on his first journey through Final Fantasy VII and experience him grow from this... Hey, you! What are you looking so down for? Okay, so this oh, is a hey, character... Hey, hey, it's, it's uh, Cat Seth. This is a character you're gonna have to keep a voice for. Shit. You're gonna hate it all. Oh, I already do. To this. Yeah, you're over here. I take it. The keystone. Well done. Oh, you f- Oh, you f- I'm gonna kill you. Hey. Wait a second. I won't run or hide. Yes, I was a sp- I said it was Kate Sith. Didn't I say it was Kate Sith? Yeah, and I said it was Tifa. If you missed the excitement of playing Final Fantasy VII for the first time, then First Encounter is the series for you. Find us at firstencounterpodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Today's case is one that I have literally been wanting to cover for a really long time, as it's just that one case that's pretty much sat with me since I was a kid and I first heard about it. So today, Ash and I are going to be deep diving into the case of America's Unknown Child, which is also known as the Boy in the Box. It's a super, super sad case, and it's just one of those, you know, like I said, it's always kind of haunted me. And I feel like most of us true crime nerds pretty much have cases that we just can't let go of and that just tend to stick with us. And today, you know, we're going to be talking about mine, but, you know, I got to ask Ash, which is the the case that's always kind of stuck out for you as a a true crime nerd? Hmm. So... I think I've mentioned this before in a past episode, but it still stands true. Um, The one that's really stuck with me is the Michelle Gardner Quinn case. Yeah, that one's a that case. Yeah. And I think for the most part, the biggest reason is because I see a lot of myself in Michelle. Mm. And like I said before, I used to bartend downtown in Burlington. Yeah. I used to walk those same streets late at night and it's just really, really stuck with me for a while. Yeah. There's just some cases that I don't know what it is about them. You know, every case matters. We always say that, but there are just some that always maybe get you deeper than you would expect. I think for me with this case, what it's always been is just this idea that somebody could just throw away this toddler, like this this young kid. It's always hurt me. And I think it's always hurt my heart because he's never been identified. So we have this like four to seven-year-old kid that was left in the middle of nowhere, basically, and never been claimed. Like that's, it doesn't feel right. There's something about that that's just, that's wrong. 
this is the case that super, super influenced me. Just to become a, a writer, I wanted to write my own mystery novel and never finished it. But the story I was working on was very loosely, it was more influenced by uh, this actual case. So there's also that too. There's a nostalgia that comes with this case. So it's one of those that every few months I check in on because I always hope that with all of the advances in the you know forensic genealogy that we're seeing right now in the DNA sciences that one day I'm going to just like open up the news online and just see that he has a name. That's one of those things that like you can't wait to see it. It's sad that we're even at that point with this case, but you know that the moment that you see that he has a name, he has an identity that, I don't know, it's just going to feel right, you know? It was like Delta Dawn. That case was like that too, where she finally got a name. With forensic genealogy, we could definitely see that happening because it's growing yeah. more and more with recent years. And I mean, it makes sense that maybe more and more cases like this one that are decades old may actually get solved, mm. which is amazing. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing it every single day. So I still have hope. I do. You know, this is a 64-year-old case now, but I thought it was kind of fitting too that this case is literally, this is its 64th anniversary is this month. So I was like, we should do this case this month. It's the 64th anniversary since he's been found that, you know, it's time. It's time to do it. I actually first heard about this case. It was back in early 2000s. So I think it was 2000. It was on a 48 Hours episode back in the day. And, and that's how I first came across it. And I just remember being so saddened by the whole thing. So it's bittersweet. I want to cover this case because it's one that has always been important to me. But I'm sad that this even happened. And there is a case to cover. I don't know if that makes sense. But it definitely is the one that like super got me into true crime. I think I couldn't believe that something happened. That was the first time I realized that like kids got hurt. I think that's a lot of it. it was that I was pretty young myself. So I think I had lived in this idea that kids didn't get murders happened, but not to kids. And so I think that was part of it too. It was kind of that like bubble bursting. So it was very prominent memory for me. And yeah, it's, it's one of those that I always talk about this case when we talk true crime. This is the one that I always go to and talk about. Yeah. And it's crazy, too, because obviously this child had parents, but also it's kind of like a spiderweb effect. You have parents. They have their parents. There's aunts, uncles, probably cousins. Yeah. Somebody had to know. Right. So They really did. So you can only hope that maybe in time we'll finally get some answers and this little boy will finally get, get some closure. I don't look for anyone to be charged in this case at this point in time. Most perpetrators are probably long past. But, um, you know, I think for this case, it's more about finding out who he was. Not so much about what happened, but about who he was. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, as we always say, the more folks talking about these cases, the more it helps these cold cases gain traction. For sure. For sure. And um, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things that hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be doing a follow-up on this one at some point. Yes, hopefully. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to leave the light, grab our jackets and boots, and walk into the chilly woods of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, back on February 25th, 1957. On February 25th of 1947, a young trap hunter was in the woods off Susquehanna Road in Fox Chase, Philadelphia, checking on his muskrat traps that he had previously set. While looking over his traps, the young man spotted a cardboard box in the woods. And upon opening the box, he discovered a young boy's body wrapped in a plaid blanket lying in the box. The boy looked to be between the ages of four to seven years old with recently cropped light brown hair. And he had signs of severe malnourishment, as well as scars that looked to have been from medical related surgeries on his ankle, chest and groin, as well as an L-shaped scar under his chin. The young boy was deceased at the time of the young trapper finding his body in the woods of Fox Chase, Philadelphia. 
The boy's body had bruises all over it, exhibiting signs of long-term abuse. The box looked to have been one of the boxes that had once contained a bassinet of the kind sold at JCPenney back during that time. The young trap hunter was afraid that police would confiscate his muskrat traps, as he shouldn't have been placing them in that area. So he did not report the findings of the young boy. A few days later, a local college student spotted a rabbit running into the underbrush. Knowing that there were animal traps in the area, he stopped his car to investigate and discovered the body. The young college student was also wary to report the discovery to the local police, but after waiting a day, he did inevitably file a report with law enforcement about the gruesome discovery of such a young boy left deceased in the woods of Philadelphia. Police officers went to investigate, and they found the body of this young, unidentified little boy. His body was bruised, his hair was matted, and it was clear that he had suffered such a great pain for someone who was so little and so young. There were signs that he was also malnourished and that someone had recently cut his hair as they found evidence of clumps of his hair on his little body. It was determined that the little boy in the box was murdered via blunt force trauma and he was left in the box, discarded in the woods for others to find. So, so sad. Like, literally so sad. It, I don't know why. Every time I hear that, it just makes, it literally makes me want to cry. Like, every time. And like I said, I know this case inside and out and like... It just hurts my heart so much. Yeah, it it honestly reminds me a little bit of the baby John Doe case that we did a while ago with the garbage bag. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's that same feeling. It doesn't, it's, I don't know who does this. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful. Just a monster. That person's a monster. Just one thing to note is that this case is actually one of the most heavily investigated crimes in the Philadelphia area. Investigators looked towards answers from the box he was found in, as the box was a very specific type of box that baby bassinets were placed in for shipping, and it was only from the JCPenney stores. There were only 12 bassinets of this type sold at the JCPenney stores in that area, but unfortunately this became inconclusive of a lead as they weren't able to trace one of the 12 bassinets to its owners. Investigators tried various methods of early forensic identification on the young boy. But remember, this was the 1950s, and the science we use nowadays just wasn't there yet. Due to the weather being cold and rainy, and his body being left in the elements for several days before law enforcement was notified of his body, investigators were unable to determine a specific time of death for the boy in the box. It is estimated by the medical examiner at that time that the boy in the box had likely been murdered anywhere from a few days before its discovery to somewhere upwards of two weeks. Although it was heavily believed to have been just a few days since his murder, as the box he was found in was dry despite the week's worth of rain that had occurred during that time. Investigators searched in vain for the identity of the little boy in the box. They took his fingerprints in hopes of making a match to him, but a match was never made. Investigators did obtain ear impressions from the boy, as well as feet prints, and they compared them to as many possible candidates as they could. Initially, it was thought by investigators that they would be able to ID the little boy fairly quickly, but those hopes were dashed, as no one ever came forward to claim the little boy or report a missing child matching the boy in the box description. They never got a hit on just who the boy in the box was. The young boy was buried in Potter's Field, located in northeastern Philadelphia. His headstone reads, quote, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy, unquote. Ugh, my heart is in a million pieces on the ground. I know, I know. It's just, ugh, 
There's no happy thing here. This I know. That's awful. awful. The little boy would grow to be referred to as the boy in the box, America's unknown child. And more recently, he was given the name of Jonathan. Several years after the boy's initial discovery, investigators posted over 400,000 flyers sent out to the Philadelphia area hoping someone would know who this little boy was. Investigators did a forensic facial reconstruction on the little boy, and that reconstruction was included on the posters. Unfortunately, no one ever seemed to come forward to claim the little boy, who was found in a box abandoned in the woods of Philadelphia. An investigator for the medical examiner's office, named Remington Bristow, ended up taking on the case of the boy in the box a few years after he had been found. Bristow had obtained a death mask of the little boy, and he kept it on his desk as a reminder that this little boy mattered, and that he would always be an advocate for this little boy if no one else would be. Oh my goodness, so sweet. I know. Remington Bristow spent 35 years working the case of the boy in the box. Ten years of that, he actually investigated the case on his own time and money. What a good human. Just a good human. I know. I know. To do his own time, like his own time and his own money. It's fantastic. Yeah. That's a good soul. That is a good human. Definitely. In a quote by his former colleague at the medical examiner's office, Joseph McGillan, it was stated that, quote, Rem Bristow was single-handedly responsible for keeping the case in the public eye, unquote. Bristow's working theory up until the day he died in 1993 was that the boy in the box was somehow intertwined with that of a family who operated a foster home for children, which was about a mile and a half from where the boy in the box's remains were found. At that time, however, police were able to account for the foster home's 25 children, and at this time, it does not seem likely that the boy in the box had any connection to that foster family. <sighs> yeah, man, this case makes you just feel so sad. Yeah, it, it really does. Yeah, it's like overwhelmingly sad, but I particularly loved just the dedication that Remington Bristow brought to this case. Oh, yeah. Up until he died, he looked for this little boy's identity. It takes a special kind of person. Oh, it totally does. And I mean, it's not like that's his job, you know? He yeah. He had the dedication to do this, and that's so fantastic. Yeah, especially after, you know, he was the medical examiner. So the fact that he took this on himself to keep investigating and keep the little boy's story alive, he'd be another forgotten cold case, I think, if it weren't for this guy's work. Like, 100% think that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yep. Some more years would pass, and while the case of the boy in the box stayed open, there was not much traction going on in the case itself. In the late 90s, roughly 40 years later from his original passing, an organization known as the Vidox Society, that was an organization which is set up to research and investigate old crimes with fresh perspectives, new science, and most importantly, with fresh eyes, they were able to get involved in the case of the boy in the box. The case of the boy in the box was presented at Vidoc's meeting, which helped to get folks back to talking about this 40-year-old case and to try and solve it yet again. Through the society's work, they were able to have the remains of America's unknown child exhumed in order to try and obtain DNA samples from the young boy's remains, as this was now a new technology that could be used to help solve this identity once and for all. It was at this time that it was decided that the boy in the box would not be returned to the Potter's Field plot, as that site had become overgrown and neglected over the years. So the society decided that it would be better to rebury the boy in the box in a plot that was donated from the Ivy Hill Cemetery for the young boy who had never had a name. 
A man by the name of George Knowles, who was a New Jersey resident, decided to help the case even further by going above and beyond and developing a website that is solely dedicated to the Boy in the Box case. This really reminds me of the folks over at the Finley Creek Jane Doe Task Force. It's that same vibe of trying to band together to solve the case. Yeah, I definitely had that feeling as well. Yeah, I just felt like a lot of what they were doing too. It's awesome to see this. It really shows just anybody can help. Put your skills to use, grab a cold case, and try to get it attention. Researchers were able to obtain some DNA from exhuming the boy in the box's body, but a lot of the DNA was degraded due to the age of his remains, which at that time was almost 50 years old. But researchers were able to put his profile into the FBI CODIS system, which allows them to have it ready in case a match ever does come in. In recent years, the Vidoc Society hosted a memorial service for the young boy who is now known as America's Unknown Child. Every year, the Society pays tribute to the young unknown child, and they have a memorial service each year in honor of this young boy who still remains unknown to this day. That is wonderful. I just, I get chills from that every time. It's just, it's so kind. I know, like I, I've said this so many times, but it really, really gives you hope. It really does. Yeah, for sure. It makes you realize there are lots of, lots of good people out there who, who care, who care about these cases and want to help them, or just, you know, do something kind and memorialize a little boy who no one knows his name and who was murdered. In 2016, the boy in the box had forensic facial reconstruction done by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and he was also added to their database. In 2018, Barbara Ray Venter, who is a genetic genealogist who has helped to solve several high-profile cases with the use of DNA, such as the Golden State Killer, is currently utilizing that very same technology and techniques in order to try and solve the case of just who the boy in the box was. Currently, the new gravesite and the new headstone for the boy in the box is at the Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedar Brook, Philadelphia. His headstone bears the words, America's Unknown Child. Folks from all over come to visit his site and often they leave him flowers and stuffed animals. I like kinda get teary every time. This month marks the 64th anniversary since the boy in the box was first discovered in the woods of Fox Chase, Philadelphia. There are tons of theories as to just who the boy in the box was and what happened to him. We are going to go over some of those theories that have been proposed over the years. Most of these have been proven to be false or inconclusive, but we just wanted to share them. As we mentioned earlier in the episode, there was the foster home that was located a few miles away from when their boy in the box was found. It was thought that perhaps the boy had been a child at that foster home. Remington Bristow, the investigator for the medical examiner's office, had always felt that this was his strong lead, especially after he attended an estate sale at the foster home and found a similar bassinet there to the one that would have been in that J.C. Penney's box. The evidence for the foster family link, however, was very circumstantial at best. And in 1998, after investigators went and spoke with the foster family, that theory was put to rest and they were ruled out as to being a possible connection to the boy in the box. Another theory to come in recent years was in 2002, when a woman who only identified herself as Martha came forward. Police felt that Martha's story was possible and seemed to match the facts of the case of the boy in the box very well. The problems that they were facing with her story was that Martha was known to have a history of mental illness. Martha claimed to police that her mother, who she described as very abusive, purchased the young boy that she stated was named Jonathan from his birth parents in 1954. Martha then stated that her mother abused the young boy extensively over the course of two and a half years. 
Until one evening, the young boy threw up his dinner, which was baked beans, and this incident threw Martha's mother into a rage, and she severely beat the young boy by slamming his head against a door repeatedly. Martha's mother then gave the young boy a bath, and it was at this time that young Jonathan died. Police were intrigued by Martha's claim, as there were aspects of her story that were relatively unknown and matched the actual findings from the coroner when an autopsy was performed on the young boy in the box when he was found. One fact was that the boy in the box had consumed baked beans at some point as those were found in his stomach, and the boy's fingers were crinkled as if he had been in water for a bit, which would make sense if he had died while in a bathtub. Martha stated that her mother had actually cut the young boy's hair, as it had been long and fairly noticeable, which also matched the choppy haircut the boy in the box also had, as well as the hair they found still on his body. Martha stated that she was forced to help her mother dispose of the boy's body, and that they together left his young, lifeless body in the woods of Fox Chase, Philadelphia. Martha also stated that as they were getting ready to pull the young boy's body out of her mother's trunk, a good Samaritan stopped and inquired if the ladies needed any help. Martha was told to stand in front of the vehicle in order to hide the license plate, and her mother convinced the good Samaritan that they were fine and didn't need any help. Police were actually able to corroborate this part of Martha's story, as they had received confidential information from a witness who said that the boy was placed in a box that had been spotted previously at what would have been the crime scene. Unfortunately, police were never able to fully corroborate Martha's story, and her neighbors at the time said that the claims Martha had about the boy named Jonathan were, quote, ridiculous, as they had access to her house during that time and stated that no boy ever lived there. Some other theories included that the boy in the box was actually raised as a young girl, and that this is why he has never been identified, as the assumed murderer had cut the child's hair. In 2008, a forensic artist named Frank Bender actually created and released a forensic reconstruction of the boy in the box at one point with long hair. There has been no hits on this theory at this time. In 2016, two writers, Jim Hoffman and Louis Romano, came to a joint explanation on just who the boy in the box may be. They felt that they had found a potential familial match of someone from Memphis, Tennessee, the writers requested that the DNA they obtained from the family members be tested against the boy in the box. The Philadelphia Police Department and the Vidoc Society were presented with a theory previously in 2013. The theory came about as the man who had introduced Romano and Hoffman to one another had actually been the one to develop the theory, and with the help of Hoffman, he was able to present his theory to that of the police and the Vodic Society. Later in 2013, Romano also gained knowledge of the theory and decided to also help the man pursue the theory in hopes of solving the case. Unfortunately, after DNA analysis was conducted, it was determined to not be a match. And so this theory has also led to a dead end at this time. Theories pop up every few years about just who the boy in the box was. But at the end of the day, he is still only known as America's unknown child. We can only hope that with the development of modern forensic genealogy DNA testing, that we may one day soon know the identity of that poor young boy who was left bruised and broken and discarded in the woods of Fox Chase, Philadelphia, 64 years ago. Man. Yeah, that's heavy. That's It's a heavy case. It always has been. It just hurts. That one just hurts. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to ask you first. Oh, <laughs> I see. I know what you're going to ask. 
theories. <laughs> what what do you think happened? I don't know. I really don't on this one. I don't know if any of the theories come quite close. I kind of wonder. I've always thought that he was from a different town and was just left there. I've kind of always leaned towards that. Maybe even a different state and someone dumped him there. So I do think with Martha's story, for example, I think it's probably the most, the one that I, I lean towards the most. I'm not sure if it's a hunt, you know, if it's true or not. It's just one of those, it's a theory, but it's almost so fantastical that it almost feels right. I don't know if I agree with her story being discounted just because the neighbors couldn't corroborate that there'd never been a boy there. If the mother was as abusive as Martha says she was, I, I hate to say this, but who knows where that little boy could have been being kept. It's not, to me, that doesn't make sense that that's the only reason you would discount her story. I, I, I got to wonder if there was more to it that made them go, eh, no, this isn't a real lead or what have you, but it does seem weird. Yeah, because, I mean, we've seen cases before, not on this podcast mm-hmm. necessarily, but like in the true crime world where there's been people living in a house being abused for years and the neighbors never knew about them. Yeah, or kids chained up upstairs and, you know, addicts. And it's, I, even talking about it makes me want to cry, but it does happen. Uh, it's atrocious, but it does happen. And I don't know. I, I don't think that the neighbors never seeing a child means much. I, I really don't. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. And I also feel like Martha's theory makes the most sense to me honestly because I mean I don't know if the baked beans was public knowledge that he had eaten them I couldn't really find that so that was the part that I'm like that could have been something you know that's where I was getting stuck because who knows what was public knowledge from back then and what wasn't you know it's a 64 year old case so you know it it is possible that some of this was found in the newspapers and stuff at the time so I, I couldn't really find yeah why it was discounted other than the fact that the neighbors couldn't corroborate. But yeah, that was the one that stuck to me too, is the the baked beans thing. Yeah, and also the fact that this was from the 1950s and mental illness wasn't talked about as much or like researched as much as it is nowadays. And I kind of feel like Martha's mom could have taken that to her advantage if she did do this awful monstrous thing. She could have been like, oh, I can get away with this because my daughter has mental illness and no one's going to believe her. Right. The other part, too, is is that if this woman was as abusive as Martha's saying she is, and of course, Martha's probably not this woman's real name, it's unknown. But, you know, if, if this woman was as abusive as was stated, then it goes to also point out that many abusers put so much fear into their victims that it's easy to get them to bend to their will and not come forward because, you know, there's that fear of, of what is this person going to do to me if I tell anyone? So there's that too. There's so many layers to it. I just, I don't know. There were parts of her story that just, of the theory at least I should say, that do seem, I, I almost feel like the most truth to it or maybe something similar did happen, but maybe not this woman, you know? There's a lot here. Yeah. When I first heard the case, I was actually leaning more towards the foster home. But of course, that was later debunked. But I think at this point in time, I would probably lean more towards Martha's story or some weird case of like someone from a different state dumping this poor little boy here or in Philadelphia. Yeah, because I mean, Martha or so-called Martha didn't come out with a story until 2002. So if this was the case, it probably took her a long time. I mean... Even if your abuser had passed on, I'm assuming her mother had passed on because it's the 1950s. Yeah, probably. You still have that fear. Oh, absolutely. Or the, you know, when you're told you're crazy so much that like, 
I, I just don't know what she would have had to gain by one, she didn't give her real name, you know, so obviously it wasn't like a, a notoriety thing. So I don't know. I don't love that it was discounted just because the neighbors didn't say anything, you know, or didn't see somebody. To me, that doesn't seem like that. That's fully a good enough reason, but there may have been more. And another thing that I could see happening is the neighbors could have just been those people that are like, oh, we don't want to get involved. We never saw anything. We never heard anything. Like, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, that happens a lot. I don't think we'll ever know exactly what happened to this little boy. Um, I think at this point, it's it's kind of like Finley Creek's Jane Doe, where the goal is more about just giving him his name at this point. And if the story of what happened to him unfolds, that's one thing. But the goal, I think, is more just give him, this little boy back a name. Oh, definitely. And like I say in every episode, we can only hope. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And with that, nerdlings, we conclude the case of the boy in the box. And we hope that one day soon we can have an update on this young boy's case and that he will finally get his name back after all this time. Keep the young boy in the box in your hearts and let's all hope that we will soon know this little boy's name. And if you liked this episode or any of our others, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at crimetimenerds or check our case notes out at crimetimenerds.com, where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is at crimetimenerds, and an email you can reach us at, which is crimetimenerds at gmail.com. Until then, you crime-loving nerds. <laughs>